Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how those countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. I'm delighted to say that I have two guests on this week's podcast. I have the wonderful Priya Lakani, who is an OBE and also a very important person because she sits on the board of my old department, now known as the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. So she advises the Secretary of State on tech policy in general. But I particularly want Priya to come on because she runs a fantastic company called Century, which is focused on EdTech, which is a passion of mine, and she will explain in a minute what Century does and why I think it's relevant. And also, we have Gautier van Malderen, who is a great friend of mine, not least because I'm an advisor to his company, Per Lego, which is also an EdTech company. So we're going to have a double header talking, I hope, a deep dive into how EdTech is changing the classroom or the university and what policymakers should be thinking about how education could change over the next few years and how potentially we could lean in to change it. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So Priya, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your journey and what Century does. I was a barrister. I I was a barrister. I used to practice libel and privacy law for the press. I did that for a handful of years. But I also spent my entire life growing up thinking I really wanted to change the world and make it a bit more positive. I was um, really fascinated by healthcare, nutrition and education. So I quit my job as a barrister and I very cliche set up a curry sauce company and uh, I set up Masala Masala. But for every pot of sauce that we sell, we'll feed a homeless person a hot meal from the revenue model will provide pentavalent five-in-one vaccines to children across Africa and will build schools. So the idea is if you can provide healthcare, education, nutrition to underprivileged children across the world, then they have at least a chance and an opportunity to, to sort of get out of that poverty cycle that they're in. That sort of landed me on Vince Cable's advisory board at Biz. So he was Secretary of State of Business Innovation and Skills Department. And there was one board meeting where they were focused on the skills agenda and they said that 1.8 million children in the United Kingdom cannot read write or do maths well enough to get a job at the end of formal education and I thought what's the point of funding education in commonwealth countries that replicate the British model if the British model doesn't work very well and so out of pure curiosity I went to schools um, some of the best schools in the country you would say in terms of um, the grades that the children were receiving and some of the most challenged schools and even though every school every child Every parent, every teacher is very different. There were some very similar issues across the front line of education. And those were that the one size fits all delivery of education still very much exists in every classroom. And teachers spend more than half their time micro-marking, micro-assessing, trying to figure out where the interventions are necessary for every child. So we basically ask our teachers to be data analysts every single day after every class. And that's actually a bit of a waste of their time. We're not sort of empowering the human intelligence of every teacher. So again, to try and cut this a little bit short, thought, right, how do we solve this? There's more technology on my phone than there is in a classroom. We've gone from a blackboard to an interactive whiteboard in terms of innovation. 
what can we do? You know, technology seems to have transformed every sector across the globe. And so, you know, after a lot of research, yeah, so nano degrees in, in machine learning, deep learning, neuroscience thought, let's build a machine that learns how Ed's brain learns. So if we can figure out how you learn and think about your cognition as it relates to learning, create a technology that can host any language, any course, any curriculum, can be anywhere in the world. A student of any age can log in. And if it learns how they're learning, you can truly personalize for the individual. You can differentiate for them, therefore removing the one size fits all. But because we're using AI and AI is obviously we need big data, we can use the big data. We can use big data analytics and then provide deep insights for the educators. The idea is provide them with the interventions. So they can make timely targeted interventions and use AI to power HI, right? So use AI to augment the human intelligence, the human interaction between teachers and students. So that's basically what we did. It's been seven years and it's used in schools across 65 countries. We have uh, now higher education. We provide over half of the colleges in the UK with our technology platform. And we've just stepped into professional education in the last two years, which is also a really exciting space because I'm equally passionate about lifelong learning. Wow, I'm exhausted. That's amazing, Priya. You had me at one size fits all because that's exactly what drives me mad about education so this is very very exciting and also i think we could do an entire podcast on masala masala moving over gautier you've been waiting very patiently it's your chance to shine i hope you've got at least three careers behind you before you started if you're going to keep up i really don't mine's not as impressive so basically (laughs) palega really came out of a personal pain points of mine whilst i was at university which was just ridiculously old school and expensive textbooks right so uh, there's a really interesting statistic that textbook prices have increased by more than 847% since 1982 or three times the rate of inflation. So in short, like I was at university, I would download a book illegally. I might photocopy a book. I was using a subscription service for my music, one for my movies. I thought surely a subscription service for textbooks should exist. It's kind of four years that we've been building this now with the biggest multi-published solution, work with over 3,300 publishers, we're available across the world, um, and we're close to hitting a million titles in the next few weeks. So quite excited from that perspective. And I think at a similar level, there's a, a huge amount of disruption being done in the higher education space. So that's our initial focus. And I'm sure we'll be able to have a bit more of a talk about how you can drive more efficacy by being a digital product and how you can drive more equity, you know, Today, Pelega can serve the needs for anyone from a student in the US to a student in you know, Africa at the price of a single book. The reason I want you both on together was because I think the one word that unites uh, both your businesses, which is a profoundly obvious word, is data. And I would love each of you, to sort of, if you can, to give me some insights into what the data is teaching you. So to go back to Priya and I said, you know, the one size fits all model when you point that. And I loved your uh, equating teaching to asking our teachers to be data analysts, because of course they don't think of themselves as data analysts, but that is exactly what they are. And I should say, by the way, I've got two kids in secondary school education. So both of these companies re- resonate with me in terms of how their education could be different. So Priya, what, what is the data sort of beginning? What is the data already telling you about how kids learn and how we can change this? Because for me, it strikes me as fairly obvious that you could be great at English and rubbish at maths, but actually, if you look at the data, you're not rubbish at maths, you're rubbish at certain bits of maths, which if you worked on, you would get very good at very quickly, but old school model wouldn't work on that. It's it's really interesting, you say, you know, sort of what's the, the data teaching you, and actually, I was just looking for 
a map of the UK, I am holding uh, a picture of, of England and England is separated into the counties and the counties are red, amber, green. And the red, amber, green exists for both literacy, for numeracy, and then also for the sciences. And so what, what data can do at a high level, aggregated like this, is it can tell us, say from a policy perspective, it could tell us instantly how children are doing you know, across the curriculum. Whereas if you think about the way that policy is generated now and decisions are made across governments across the world is that we often wait until the end of the year until high stakes exams have been taken. We wait to try and collect that data from schools, maybe even, you know, in some efficient countries twice a year. So then policy decisions are made based on data that's aggregated at a certain time. By the time you've made a decision and you've decided to intervene, it's obviously a bit late, isn't it? And the situation's changed. Whereas what this real-time data can tell you by using technology is what's happening right now. You can then start to make quick interventions. So for example, you might say, let's invest in more physics teachers or upskilling of physics teachers. And then you can start to see the data change based on your interventions. You can start to A-B test uh, different policy initiatives. And you can start to do that with real-time data. It's really about what you ask of the data rather than the data telling you anything because mm. it's all there. So we start to analyze the data in terms of, we look at pupil premium and non-pupil premium students. So obviously in England, that's economically disadvantaged um, and their peer group. We look at dyslexia, dyspraxia, we look at autism, uh, we look at gender, we look at age groups, we look at should we be teaching age versus stage? It's really what you ask of the data. The point is to collect it. And if you're collecting it and you're viewing it and you have access to it in real time and, and the data collection has got to be done very well. I mean, I think that's a given. Right. So and, and I know that, you know, Gossie and I will be talk, if we talk about data. We're expecting that people have teams of the right sorts of engineers and data scientists behind them. And if you have that data, it's, it's, really, it's really what you want to know. And so that, Ed, Ed, that's what's so exciting about it. It's, you know, it's an open question. And you know, it's up to the policymakers to, to, to look at that information and say, well, what decisions ought we to make? And then testing those are important as well. In your experience, when you make a decision in terms of policy, at what point do you see the result of that? And then when might you actually even change or amend your decision or test it in a different way? We're not agile when it comes to making such decisions. I don't see us being agile. I don't see our governments being agile. But again, it's because have they got the data and the information in real time to be able to make such decisions? That is entirely possible in education today. Why we don't make more use of it is a huge question that, that governments ought to ask themselves. It's a massive question, that, which is do governments base policy on evidence? To which the answer is a resounding no, I think. Gautier, you also have an insight into how students, you know, the textbook industry is, is ripe for disruption, not just... And I think the key thing about Palego is a lot of people get tech wrong in the sense of thinking it's you take an analog process and make it digital. You're not just about taking a textbook and making it digital like a Kindle, because now you're gaining massive insights into how students use textbooks. What is the most effective way of putting learning kind of textbooky format and so on and what cuts through to students and you become interactive? Exactly. So, you know, the first kind of I'd say the first three years of Palego was all about solving that content layer, right? Which was, what does the student need today? Still, I'd say 95% of students read off a textbook. And once we have that content layer, we can now build a product layer on top. So some things we're doing is we're building flashcards within the textbooks to help students study you know, faster, smarter, more efficiently. But I think just coming back to the piece of the data, 
what we do today is we collate all the consumption trends on who's reading what, how much time has been spent on a book, which title, which chapter is most popular. And I think what's really interesting is we're seeing a lot of students who are studying economics who might dip into a psychology book or reading a history book. So it also shows that sometimes the breadth and depth of content is very valuable. And then I think for our publishers, what's really scary for a lot of these heavy textbooks, only maybe 40, 50% of the book is actually being consumed. So again, it allows publishers to have more informed decision-making about making, making better quality content, which then helps the students learn better. And then finally, the last piece of how we're helping, I think, as well is we have a lot of instructors who use Pelego, and we also share back on how students are interacting with their content, what they're sharing. And what's shocking for the, some of these instructors is they're seeing that out of their class, you know, only 20% will read the book from A to Z. So again, I think for me, data just allows you to be so much more powerful and drive much more efficacy in both the learning outcomes, but also in producing great quality content. Just quickly, is there any Audible textbook? I mean, Audible is still very much focused on those trade publishers, right? The Penguin Houses, Random House, the Hashettes of the World. What's really interesting is students learn different, very different formats. So we're now offering text-to-speech, and you're seeing that students are actually using text-to-speech. But what I think is more interesting is once they use text-to-speech, they accelerate it. So I don't know if you've ever listened to a podcast on 1.2 or 1.5 speed. Well, we're seeing that students are accelerating the speed on how they listen to the content. But of course, it only works for a, a subset of the whole academic kind of learning environment, right? So if you're studying physics, it doesn't really work. But for English literature students, history students, they're very big consumers of the text-to-speech functionality. You know, I should say that I always recommend that people listen to this podcast at one and a half speed because I sound super intelligent at one and a half speed. So <laughs> articulate and impressive. What's really interesting is because because we're also tracking how how the students consume content and and I love I love the point that it's, you know this is being done in higher education as well by Pelego but it, it's very much so we power these publishers um, platforms too and so they put their content onto the system and they love it because they can start to see as Gothia was saying well what are actually students engaging with how long are they spending on this and um, with us we have formative assessments so we attach questions to things so are they actually able to understand content after reading it. So it's the first time they're ever getting data and feedback on their textbooks because you have no idea what anyone's doing when they've actually bought a physical book. You can't improve your content other than by receiving qualitative feedback often from textbooks. And um, the other point on the on the on the audible point is that there's an enormous amount of neuroscience and research that's been done on how people ingest information. And Gosia is absolutely right. It's different for different people. Some people can start off actually reading something in static text. And then if you want it to go from your working memory into your long-term memory, it's about revisiting that material and sometimes in a different medium, because the idea is you're, you're then doing the process of recalling your brain. And every time you do the process of recall, you're then essentially strengthening those neural connections. So there's loads of work that's been done here. And, and you know, it's another point about government policy. Again, why don't we use all of this neuroscience that we understand um, that we can then combine with technology to actually make education better? because we don't seem to do that. Let's use that neuroscience research as it relates to learning, combine that with technology. I mean, that's the entire premise of why we built Century. And why can't we use that information when it comes to informing gov government policy? Because that would be a really fantastic step in the right direction. It is an opportunity in England, obviously, because the way education policy has devolved here, it's an opportunity to take a step forward and actually lead the way. And I think this is something that we now have a new Secretary of State that we might actually be brave enough to be able to do because he certainly loves technology. He loves data. He's got a background in creating a very successful business 
using data. It's all about data. He, he found it, co-founded YouGov. I think there is an opportunity for us to do something really exciting. So if he's listening, you have all the ideas on this podcast. <laughs> so, you know, let, let, let's do it. I mean, it's not, and these aren't things that we've made up. These are things that, that have been tried and tested in products. They've been A-B tested. They've been academically researched. But yet, um, when it comes to governments, I don't think anyone's really taken that, that, that positive, innovative step forward. I'm going to send him this podcast when it's published. But I presume you've, you've already had a high-level meeting with Nadim Zahabi. No, I met him at a dinner <laughs> recently since he's been second. I mean, he's been very busy. He's only been there for a couple of weeks. There are various meetings being set up with various people. I think we've got an interested Secretary of State, and I think that's, that, that's a really good thing. If you've got someone who's interested and somebody who understands this, and he understands it from a completely different perspective as well, then we can all, you know, he's going to be open-minded. And I think that's, that's what we could ask for. That's all we can ask for. Ed, can I, I'll just jump in and ask you a question. Do you know what the fastest growing university degree is right now? Business studies. Uh, it's psychology. And because like Pelega, you can see those trends, right? So that's also quite powerful is you can share back those trends because you can see how many students are adopting both the content, but also the fastest growing interest because you can see search demand. So I just share that because I think it's quite interesting. I would have never thought it would be that one, but. So your platform is telling you that more students are studying psychology because more students are searching for psychology books on the Perlego platform? Not necessarily from that perspective, but the growth rate in the course. So in terms of the undergraduate students studying that course is the fastest growing segment that's amazing. in the UK right now. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a press release, Goethe. Get it out there. We need, we need, we need to get this in. This is the classic <laughs> kind of uh, Daily Mail page three. Exactly. So this government is fond of saying, you know, we're world beating, et cetera, et cetera. I actually do think the UK is a world leader in, in education and has been for many, many years. There are lots of other countries around the world that look to the UK, to our universities and our schools as exemplars of great education. And our universities are still in the sort of top 10 rankings, whether you believe those or not. So again, what Priya said earlier about the chance for the UK to be ahead really appealed to me because this is what tech is all about. Your two companies, in theory, should change the way we do things because the reason we have textbooks was because the only way to communicate large amounts of information was to print that information and put it in a book, which you then took away from the bookshop. You don't have to do that anymore with technology. Similarly, the only way to teach until recently was effectively to stand in front of a class and have a blackboard or at best an interactive whiteboard and transmit information to the class and then do a random test to check whether how much of that information it got in. So Priya, will your platform fundamentally change the way we teach? And Gautier afterwards, the textbook must be dead in the sense that there must be a better way of communicating information in a technology age. So Priya, let's start with how you think teaching could change potentially. It's really interesting because every teacher is different and teaching is as personalised as learning is, right? So in terms of transforming teaching, it absolutely increases the efficacy. It allows teachers to deliver in certain different models. It allows you to essentially hone in on what the issues are for every individual student, for every single student, rather than do that one size fits all. It really gets to the essence and the crux of what teaching and learning is. So when, when we talk about does it really sort of turn it on its head and transform it? Well, that's one way of saying it, but that also sounds quite scary. Now, actually, what it does is it completely empowers the teacher just to do what they signed up to do. So if we think about what we want a teacher to be doing, when your kids are in secondary school at the moment, Ed, what do you expect to be going on in that classroom as a parent? It essentially enhances all of that. So 
technology, like Century, is a tool. It's a tool that augments teaching and learning. It doesn't replace it in any way. So those that embrace it then start to see the impacts and the outcomes. Will it be everywhere, I think, is also an, a sort of related question. I think that all schools will have this technology within the next three years. And it would have been a slightly longer answer pre-COVID, but we've just been the world's largest EdTech experiment for the last 18 months. And so um, adoption has rocketed. I assume during COVID that, okay, all of these schools have now come on board. All these countries have now come on board. It's been translated into all sorts of languages. But once things settle down, people maybe want, some people want to go back. What's really interesting is that the schools that took it on are retaining it because in September 2021, it was the first month you know, when schools were open, where they had the opportunity to say, I'm back at face-to-face learning. There was some Zoom fatigue, some Teams fatigue and all of that, and some sort of let's spend some time face-to-face with children, which is really important because the whole point is this tech doesn't replace. It's not about screen time replacing face-to-face, which is a huge misconception of ed tech. But what we've seen is that people have retained it. So it's really, really exciting because they've seen that they can improve outcomes. They've seen that they can save teacher time. They can see it's all about improving the efficacy in terms of the learning outcomes in education and that they want to continue with it. So even the most sceptical educators are saying, ah, this is actually just the tool to make my life a lot easier. So transformational, you could say yes. It's a very good point, actually, because I was getting too carried away thinking that actually kids should just be looking at a screen all day, even in the classroom. But actually, school is about much more than just simply getting information to kids' heads. It's about socialisation, learning to work with in teams and etc etc but go to the death of the textbook you know because I'm, I'm still searching for your daily mail headline but what i mean is, is is the transformation of the textbook the textbook industry is a massive industry right it's, it's bigger than the music industry but where i think palego is going and where we're going is you don't just learn off a textbook you learn off video content audio content maybe journals and we're creating that marketplace where you find all your core learning material in one simple space and then you could create a community and a collaborative nature on top of it. So imagine if you could work directly with your professor and your peers on the textbook, you're commenting and working together. Peer-to-peer learning also drives efficacy in the learning. So in terms of death of the textbook, I think it's not the death of the textbook. It's I think print is also very much here to stay, but print will become a luxury product. And I think for us, it's much more of driving that community learning on top of the, of the textbook. And I think more importantly, do you see how in... The music industry, you don't consume albums anymore, you consume singles. I believe it will be a chapter level model instead of a, a, a full book model. So you might consume one chapter here, two chapters there. That's where I see more of the death of the textbook coming from, if I, if I could quote you. The other end of the process, as it were, which is when young people enter the workforce. Uh, I was thinking about it when Priya was talking about how kind of crude it is to measure attainment on a, a random exam, you know, where you might be t- turning up your exam feeling ill anyway. Presumably, this transformation should allow employers to almost kind of disengage from paper qualifications, as it were. And if you're coming for a job, at, you know, for the sake of argument at Tesco, they can assess you for that job on a whole range of different qualities and knowledge without having to check, you know, your GCSE grades or your A-level grades or your university degree. Priya, do you think your platform, in a sense, can be used by employers to assess the capabilities of people they think of hiring? Yes, without giving too much away. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> and the people paving the way for this, there are two organisations, one called Rethinking Assessment, 
that are thinking, how can we rethink what assessment looks like? So is it just about the nine levels or grades that you come out with at the end of a formal education? Can it be a lot richer? Can it be, can we provide more so that when you're going for the job at Tesco, it's not that they would want, Tesco would want to test you on something else. You can show more. And then there's the Times a special commission for education. Their interim report's coming out in January 2022. Their, their final report will be out in the spring at some point. I'll be wrong if I try and guess the month. But they're going to be uh, reporting something and they've been gathering evidence from all sorts of people. So, um, so those are the two organisations that I look out for. And then I think what might be a really good idea is to revisit that question on have a skills podcast post the Times uh, Commission's report next year. Uh, and I'll also be able to very happily share how our technology has evolved since then and is being used in this sort of way. Because we've been working on this for about three years. And three years ago, we actually produced something and somebody said to me, he's like, he actually used to be in Thatcher's, Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. And he said, Priya, this is a little bit too innovative for <laughs> today. You're already trying to convince people to use AI when it comes to education. If you show everyone this, they're all going to fall off their chairs. So let's wait a little bit. The advice was correct. Then COVID happened. And, you know, lots of people started saying, well, well, GCSEs and A-levels, everything's been postponed, right? In the sense, it's not postponed, but we're using predictions. They've been cancelled, actually. We're using predictions. Is there another way of providing that assessment? And, and is it, you know, is there more that we can do to your point? Is there more that we can show about a child? And this is where also the students revolted, right? They were they were talking about the you know mostly on predictions, mostly on or, or you know the, the rogue algorithm that was attempted to be used by DFE and Ed Offset, which was outrageous. But they also said, you know, my education is the point you made. It's so much more than than simply this knowledge that I've acquired in these subjects. How can I show that portfolio of of work, that portfolio of skills? We are not far away from seeing solutions to that. And uh, it's it's really it's really exciting, and we're we're doing it with schools. They they know exactly what is required in this space, and I think there'll be nothing better in a sense for teachers to be able to show, in the sense of this is actually the education, as much as we can show it in this way that we provide for these children. It's not about nine numbers at GCSE or three or four A level. So it is time for change, and COVID has COVID has as devastating as the pandemic has been. The opportunities provided by the pandemic are immense when it comes to education. And I don't think that we'd have got this far and this quick um, if, it, if it actually wasn't for the last, uh, the last 18 months. No, that's, that, that is interesting. I want to talk to you about resistance in a minute, but go to you. Do you feel that I, I was listening to you talking about, you know, the transformation of the textbook, as it were, it would occur to me that if I was a large employer, I don't know why I picked on Tesco, I just think a large employer, you, Tesco, as it were, are in a position with companies like Perlego out there to actually say, well, you know, I can create the University of Tesco. I can create textbooks, as in a mix of video, flashcards, et cetera, that communicates the knowledge that I want the people rising through the ranks of Tesco to acquire as they, as they work for us. So, yeah, maybe to, to give a different stance to that is a lot of people are buying Perlego as lifelong learners. 30% of our users are maybe someone like yourself who had a previous career in politics and wants to learn a bit about coding, subscribes to Pelego because you've got all the best coding books. But I think maybe looking at this from a, from a Pelego perspective, what I think is really interesting is we don't ask for degrees. I don't care about grades anymore. Oh, so this is in terms of your hiring? In terms of hiring, I haven't even been to university, right? Which brings me to the kind of fundamental question, is a university degree or specifically right now, an MBA degree actually worth it? 
which is another interesting concept because if you think about Pelega, right, on a mission to make educational content more affordable, you don't necessarily have to go and study at Harvard if you could follow the professor in Harvard in terms of what they're reading, what they're prescribing, and that takes it to another layer. So I think you'll see even more disruption, maybe not on the textbook side, but more around the university side of what is actually the true value of a university degree today. Ultimately, for me, it is down to three things. The quality of your professors and your peers, the brand, you can't ignore it. The brand of Cambridge or Oxford is still very, very important. And then thirdly, the experience, right? Some of our best years were at university. So that's what you're paying for. There's a funny joke that if you still quote your university degree three, four years in your career, then you haven't had a good kickstart to your career. <laughs> but what, uh, how do you hire people then who haven't been to university? What, what are your assessment tools? Literally, you create your own assessments and we test them on problems we're currently experiencing. I think there's a huge opportunity when you think about education as well as to create these assessment tools for professionals who don't need to look at a degree but could just test you know, properly on the quality of the work of the individual. For medicine and stuff, you can't do that, right? So again, it's always you've got to think about it in different verticals. Yeah, that is, it is interesting, horses for courses. But even there, you know, I remember there was a debate a few years ago about whether you could shorten the medical degree. I mean, I think one constantly needs to innovate. And it, you're right, there are certain verticals like medicine where you'd expect people to kind of go to university in its traditional sense. But whether you need a seven-year university course to become a medic in this day and age. And actually, that's a nice segue to kind of institutional resistance, which I suspect both of you uh, have come across. And, and by institutional resistance, I don't necessarily mean conscious res resistance. I mean, if I'm a teacher at a school, and I've been teaching for 30 years, you know, frankly, you know, I know, in my own life, how difficult it is to adopt new technology and do things differently, how on earth do teachers flip to that and also going kind of back down the pipeline? How can companies like Century start to potentially affect And I don't mean that in a sinister way, the kind of way teachers are trained before or as they go into the classroom. And similarly, I wonder, Gautier, whether you think that, you know, the adoption of tools like Pelego is, is kind of resisted by more traditional university teachers who want their students to be have 25 textbooks on their shelves and read it from age So Priya, do, do you find not institutional resistance, but it's quite difficult to change mindsets? Yeah, so the technology is there. The, the challenge is change management. A third of our company go into schools or do it, you know, do it online now. But the idea is that we, we train them on how to use technology. Now, it's really interesting because technology is kind of plug and play. Like, you know, you log in and you go. And what teachers will often find is, oh, it's so easy. It's, you know, it's so simple. And it's really, I can see how it's so effective. It's just the initial mindset of even just logging in, just pop, pop your login in and go and try it out. And there's that sort of barrier there. And that, that's, you know, I'd say about, yeah, maybe about, 40 to 50% of every time that we're sort of demoing, you know, and demonstrating the, the technology that we'll see. I mean, that's quite a large, that's quite a high number. The number is reduced post-COVID because what's happened is that teachers have told other teachers about it because it grew so quickly. And the one thing about teachers is they just trust other teachers. There are many teachers that are also married to teachers, we found. So sometimes we'll get a school, an entire school will be onboarded because they'll say, oh, my husband uses it at the school down the road. And we might have tried to contact that school for three years, but the point is, is that teachers listen to teachers. So it is that, you know, that, that, that adoption curve, Roger's adoption curve, the sort of famous one. You know, pre-COVID, we were very much in the innovators and sort of pioneers area. We're very much now in sort of the early to late majority um, because of the acceleration of adoption. So I, I think that it will move. Um, you're always going to get your, you know, kindly put your, your, lag your laggards and your laggards who are kickers and screamers who just don't want this. And I think that's OK. But, you know, at the same time that they'll be left behind. And, and there's now, even though parents, you know, the last year, 
has very much been about how much can we get our children face-to-face -face in the classroom socialising. They missed out on that. But in the next year or so, you'll certainly see parents demanding this. We've, we've started to see schools now take on the technology because parents have demanded it. They've said, we know that it's being used by cousins or it's being used by my other child at another school. Because it's just clear, why would you not want this information? If you show the information in an anonymized way and say, this could be the information about Ed's child at secondary school and how you know he or she is performing in each subject, where the gaps in knowledge are. Actually, if he focus on, focuses on this first, his, his outcomes will improve in a significantly higher uh, way than, than in another way. Who would say no to that? Would the child say no to that? No. Would the parents say they don't want that information? No. Would the teachers say they don't want that information? No. So it's a really obvious question. So it's just about log in, have a look at it. It's very simple. The, the big sell, if you like, and the reason why they all then just, they love it, is it saves on average six hours per week per teacher. That's nearly a working day. So, Gautier, you've already speculated about the death of the university. So in terms yes. of kind of, does a company like Perlego change the way university courses are taught? hundred percent. Don't sit on the fence on this one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but let me, let me share you some, just some high level numbers as well, right? Because from afar, people are always so shocked, but the education industry is a $1.1 trillion industry. And today only 3.6% of it is digital. Wow. That is amazing. The, the way I see it is using an analogy to maybe remote work. I don't know when you, we all started, we all had to work from home. It was a bit awkward. You had to be on zoom and you're kind of forced to do this. And I didn't really enjoy it in the beginning. Now it's part of life, right? And I think the digital mix in education is going to, going to be a hybrid learning model where 50% of it will be digital, which drives more efficiencies, better cost, but you'll still have a bit of in-person. So for us, when the university shut down and locked down, we gave free access to students. This was a cheeky way to drive up adoption of our content and our, our subscriber base. But what we're seeing is some of those professors who, as you mentioned, who've been you know, around for 30 years, in the beginning, they hated it, right? They were like, I can't stand the digital solution. Now they very much accept that it's part of their kind of learning mix. So kind of my overarching, like to sum it up is COVID-19 has massively accelerated the need for digital solutions in education. And it's very much here to stay. And there's so much opportunity still to grow. And I think today's student, today's generation expects a more digital offering, right? It's uh, if you just give them a print textbook, it's just not good enough anymore. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I think it's going to be in terms of what Priya was saying about teacher, teacher, I totally get that. I mean, one of the most interesting companies that I came across, you know, a few years ago, which sort of slightly meandered along, but uh, was Tez Global, and it was this kind of concept that um, I think something like a million teachers had put their lesson plans up online, and it became this, you know, you, these some of these teachers became rock stars, you know, the person with the kind of most downloaded maths, maths PowerPoint. So I do think this is fascinating. So final question, I guess, is, I mean, we alluded a bit to, you know, whether we could get in a room with Nadim Zahawi. How would you, let's start with Gautier this time, how would you, I mean, is there a way that policy people can move the dial on on education because certainly universities to a certain extent they're independent anyway which is a good thing i always thought funny enough that student fees would lead to innovation because you would see more kind of pop-up universities saying you were you don't have to leave university with 50 grand's worth of debt because we can condense your course into a year etc cetera, etc cetera. can policymakers move the dial by engaging with companies like perlego and, and the insights you're giving them hundred percent. I think the UK has been at the forefront for the fintech industry. I'd very much like to see the same for the ed tech industry. 
and you know things that could help is for example if you were to test new education products you'd get a small subsidy from government for example because sometimes there's a lot of risk for a professor or an institution to use a new product because it's all challenging the status quo which some of these professors have known for 30 years so in short i believe there's so much opportunity i've got many ideas that i won't share here but uh there's so much that can be done priya you're quite experienced in the world of public policy you do sit on the board of DCMS, what would you do? They just need to see this data. We've got a new set of ministers at DfE. They should look at the data. We've waited for seven years for something to happen in government, and we decided not to hold our breath because even with my Indian skin tone, I'm going to go very blue (laughs) if I keep holding my breath. (laughs) And um, we're just going to do what we're doing. We're going to continue doing what we're doing. So it's an opportunity to get ahead as a country. It's an opportunity... On the levelling up agenda, it's an opportunity to show you really mean it. If some of the top schools in the country, and it's proven that it can work in the state sector just as effectively, can take this on. Um, if you analyse who those schools are, what makes up those schools, it's not about tech and whether they've got an iPad for the student, they haven't. It's about you've got a leader who wants to innovate, you've got a leader who's bold enough to take something on and actually get it into the organisation and get it embedded. If they can support schools, I suppose, with that sort of funding, the change management funding, then if you want to level up and you want to see those outcomes everywhere, then you need to embrace this technology. And this technology is not, what it is not, is similar to what you were talking about earlier. And I have lots of respect for TES and TES resources and the people that have created those. It is not a a platform with lots of content on it. This is an AI. Yeah, this is the key, because I think the thing is, is that ministers often and and forgive me for saying this but they don't understand what ai is right so they'll look at any system and it could be an ai it might not be and and whether they don't know how to ask the questions they don't actually understand what makes these sorts of systems very rich and if used in the right way ethically you know if we think about the data and, and all of the implications in that those questions can be answered in the right way if you really want to level up why doesn't every school including the village primary school a c of e school in some sort of really suburban area where those teachers don't turn up to the education shows, they don't go to the exhibitions, they are not online on social media to see what's going on. How do you get it in those schools? We have 30,000 schools in this country. But those schools that are out there, they're the same schools. The ones that are learning about Century, the ones that are learning about Pelego and thinking, well, how could that affect our students in the future? They're the same head teachers. But how do you reach the hard to reach ones? And in schools, it's much more challenging because there are so many more of them. And it's so much more fragmented. So what can the government do to help create what is a competitive ed tech market already in the UK? And that's the good way for it to be, because competition is a good thing. How can you ensure that all of those educators are informed about this? And how can the funding that's already been allocated say, you know, we can ask for funding as much as we like. That's not going to happen and change. But how can the funding that's already been allocated be used in a really effective way? Or can there be a central way? a central system DFE can create to create some sort of change management program. Mm, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I tried to, I mean, uh, well, I tried to engage DFE with Perlego's work and they couldn't have been less interested, partly because they took the view they couldn't endorse any individual commercial provider, although they were happy to issue press releases extolling the virtues of Google Classroom. What interests me is, of course, you know, ministers rock up to bet, you know, the computer, the, sorry, the EdTech kind EdTech of in, international yeah. conference in January and make speeches, but presumably they're utterly meaningless speeches, broadly speaking. It wasn't great when one of your colleagues stood up on stage after I introduced her and she read from a script 
from auto cue ed and instead of ai she said a1 that wasn't a good moment for me (laughs) (laughs) and i needed to keep a very standard poker face i don't think they're meaningless i think look well i think some of the previous ones were meaningless because if you rock up to bet and then behind the scenes at dfe and sanctuary buildings you're sitting there saying i don't believe in technology yes that's meaningless because you're not going to do anything about it and then you've got this entire team of civil servants particularly an edtech team who are incredibly bright and very willing and and very well informed who who are not going to be able to do much but things have changed and i think we need to look forwards the new ministers as i've said i think that yeah they'll be very open to this i think let's just see what they do what will be disappointing is if the new technologies that are in every other sector transforming every sector marketplace technology as Gautier is talking about has transformed sectors platform platforms have transformed sectors it's that question Ed that you picked up on which is how can the UK get ahead and then some of the points we've made about leveling up I, I think I'd go further with then Gautier to talk about higher education you know, higher education students, even schools, you're competing against gaming. They ingest really rich, beautiful content every single day when they're at home. And then you go into, and universities, are, are, this is really applicable there because it's all about discipline for yourself. You're competing against that type of virtual environment and then a standard black and white kind of textbook. You know, I'd go further to say, actually, I think it'll be, you know, you said, uh, I think you said the point that textbooks will be uh, a luxury. And that's being really polite. I think it's a medium and it's a medium that will be really can be very powerful for some people. That's how I see it. But I think that, you know, the government has a huge opportunity here. And I think the speeches that we might hear in January will be more meaningful than what we've had in the past. Go to. So I've been to bet several times and I just feel that there isn't much substance to those fairs sometimes in terms of, you know, lots of lots of grand words. And it's very similar to what we're seeing with COP26 right now. Action is really important and I still need to see some of it. I mean, I do like the idea of the um, education tech review. I mean, I don't know if there has been anything like that. I mean, I do think, I know it sounds awful to say, let's have a government review, but I found that moving the dial, you know, when we got coding into the curriculum, it was because I commissioned a review from Ian Livingston to look at how to promote, how to support the video games industry. And he did a great review, which was kind of 19 recommendations for industry and five for government. So government wasn't asked to do much, plus it didn't cost any money. And I just think, you know, and one of the things I learned about tech when I was a minister and I was that I think what helped move the dial on tech wasn't just policy in the UK. It was constant leaning in by government to say, this is really important. This is where the future of our economy and society is going. And I just think, weirdly, that ministers talking about edtech more would change the climate. You know, uh, before, you know, the first stage of education reform under this government was about changing the structures and bringing in preschools and so on. Then it was about kind of, in my view, slightly going backwards on the curriculum in terms of kind of, you know, emphasising rigour and exams. And I think COVID has also taught us that exams are a pretty crude way of measuring attainment. If you can't sit exams, suddenly all that learning goes out the window and you leave school with a kind of arbitrary assessment of what you've learned when tech could have provided you with a really rich, rich assessment. It's a really good point about ministers talking about edtech, because actually I think there are some ministers who would love to talk about edtech, but they don't do it with a comms policy. What happens is a minister wants to go out and say, uh, I'd like to visit a bunch of companies, not just one. EdTech's really huge in Britain. It's just something to be really proud of. It's like Gautier said, you know, we could be the world leader in EdTech and we don't even have 
anything like the investment of the US and China in this area. Yet the innovation is absolutely extraordinary. It's such a good example of innovation in Britain. But when you talk about EdTech, what happens is Minister at DFE says, I want to say something about EdTech. And then someone says, but if you do that, the unions are going to stand up and say, don't take shortcuts. It's not about tech. It's about our teachers. Right. This is what happens. Let's talk about the real life of being a minister in policy. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they don't necessarily want to say something nice about ed tech. It's because what's the reaction going to be that's going to be the loudest in the newspapers. Right. So if you do it in a way that is helpful to those that then might come back with a very short why are you saying that it's not about shortcuts it's about teachers actually it's not shortcutting here is the explanation as to why it is helpful why it's actually helpful to teachers and then come up with a comms policy around it bringing everyone on the journey with you that's a smart way of doing it the other point to make is that you know when you mentioned the unions you know edtech is not about taking people's jobs it's about making people's jobs easier to do i mean the, the point about teaching is to interact with pupils and if you can do that as you say if you can save six hours a week i mean you've you prompted another policy thought in my head, which is Matt Hancock, to his great credit, when he left the Department of Digital to go to be health secretary, set up NHS X based on his experience of digital. And maybe Nadine should set up EdX, named after me, of course. EdTech X. EdTech X already exists. Does it? There's a company called EdTech X, yeah. <laughs> he should set up EdX. Something, something like that. I mean, they've got the EdTech team and civil servants within the Department for Education. They often rely on organisations like Nestor and others and the you know, Education Endowment Foundation and things like that. But NHSX, what I like about it and being on the AI Council, we hear updates from NHSX quite a lot, is they have a very specific remit. And I think you're right. There is space within DfE for the EdTech team to, to create something like that. And it actually is a hub of innovation. And it can be, we already have a private sector company doing this, let's bring them in. It could be all of that. You know, I, I think that would be, that. that's a really positive move forward. You've solved the problem, Ed. There you go. I know. We've all solved it together. So we're going to have the Van Mulderen review into EdTech followed by the creation of EdX. Guys, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I've really, genuinely, really enjoyed the podcast. I thought it was a more of a brainstorm than a podcast and it's been fascinating and i genuinely would uh, even though i'm whatever it is marking my own homework i guess would be the phrase if i was nadim zahawi i would listen to this podcast so i'm going to send it to him. thanks for listening to this episode of the vase view a production of kindred media